The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to talk today about something that will become a bigger and bigger issue over the next couple of years when it comes to the things that Joe Biden and Democrats want to do. And the fact that there will be resistance from the Republican Party, that's not like the typical resistance we've seen in the past from more traditional Republicans, but a more sort of pernicious and extreme resistance which completely poisons the well for people that want to have good faith debates about what policy should be. And I think the best way to sort of explain what I'm talking about is to imagine it through the lens of one issue. Let's pick pick the issue of taxes to discuss this just for the sake of selecting something. There is no one right answer on what tax rates should be and what tax brackets should be and what should be uh, tax deductions versus tax credits versus nothing at all. These are real topics over which there is serious debate. There's a lot of academic literature, for example, which suggests the top marginal tax rate for generating the most government revenue should be 70 percent. But beyond that, it can start to be a disincentive for people to work. But even if you agree on 70 percent, at what level of income should that rate kick in? Should it be two million dollars a year or 10 or 20 million dollars a year? There are really good debates there that that's not there's not one answer to that question. There are real debates as to whether low or no income tax states are really cheaper to live in or in a state with no income tax. Are you saving on income tax, but there's higher sales tax on average and higher property tax on average? So like is a no income tax state really cheaper overall or is it just an illusion meant to attract people with a political statement? We have no state income tax when you pay more in other types of taxes. OK, that that's a great thing to explore. We can debate whether people should pay any taxes at all if they earn under $10,000 a year or $20,000 a year or $30,000 a year. Or should they get a tax credit versus a low tax rate? Or where should phase outs begin for certain programs, welfare programs or tax credits or whatever? What about universal basic income? There are good debates being had there. And all of these are debates that can be had in good faith with people who disagree about the answer. Like I have an opinion about all of those issues, and I recognize there are people with other opinions who are uh, discussing these issues in good faith. They're operating within the, the realm of what's reasonable. They have valid points to make. And these are the people we need to engage with. The problem here is when extremists poison the well by introducing ideas that aside from making no sense are never going to be a reality. So like when you interject the people who say all taxes are theft or all taxes are slavery as a starting point or all taxes should be abolished as a starting point. This is the United States. This is a country of 331 million people. We're not getting rid of all taxes. The idea of taxes as slavery is not going to push the debate forward as to what tax policy should be or people who say, you know, we should put a 99 percent tax on incomes over a million dollars. No one should be allowed to make over a million dollars. It's not going to happen, guys. We're, we're getting nowhere with that as the starting point. And I'm going to distinguish in a moment extremists poisoning the well versus productive uh, uh, stretching of the Overton window. These are two different things. So the people who say 
you know, these things, they are often uh, asserting that we should include these ideas because we don't want to suppress speech and we don't want to censor ideas. I, I agree with that. But as I've said before, not every harebrained idea deserves a seat at the adult table when we're discussing policy. So we often talk about moving the Overton window. For example, the more we talk about Medicare for all as the gold standard, the more a public option seems to be a centrist idea, which it is. The more we talk about $2,000 per month in coronavirus stimulus, the more that a single $2,000 payment seems like a pretty centrist idea, which it is. And so we want to use the Overton window to better our negotiating ability. But taxes are slavery doesn't improve anyone's negotiating ability. It's just a crazy idea. And this is how these new extremists in the House of Representatives are going to be poisoning the well, not necessarily on taxes, but this is the, the idea of it and making it impossible for Democrats to do anything which they've admitted they plan to do. So as a result, as we spoke about yesterday, I'm completely on board with what we learned Bernie Sanders plans to do, and that's use budget reconciliation to get as much done as possible in the Senate with a simple majority rather than requiring 60 votes, meaning they don't need a single Republican, assuming that all 50 Democrats are on the same page. There unfortunately is no other way with people who are fundamentally bad faith actors. Now, I'm willing to have my mind changed, but what good will the idea of bipartisanship do when it just means allowing completely ridiculous ideas to be part of the conversation and completely absurd people to slow down the possibility of progress. So there's the debate about the filibuster that continues. There's the idea of unity and bipartisanship that Joe Biden has expressed as a goal. As I've said before, I don't think it's going to happen. And this is exactly why these extremist ideas poison the well. And we're seeing it happen already on Fox News. We're seeing it on OAN. We're seeing it on Newsmax. And I uh, b believe that while I am willing to have my mind changed, the idea of bipartisanship, merely if that means allowing ridiculous, radical, reactionary ideas into the debate does nothing good for anybody. And Democrats should simply plow through it for these next at least two years during which they will have control of the House, Senate and the White House. If you disagree with me, let me know. I received a ton of emails about this. One of the most common requests for segments I've gotten over the last couple of weeks is from people who write in and say some version of I have a Trumpist conspiracy theorist family member or friend or coworker. I don't know how to talk to them. I don't want to uh, uh, make anybody angry, but in some way I feel the need to try to knock some sense into them proverbially, not physically. And I don't even know where to start. And in the past, depending on the relationship with the person, I say, well, you have to decide your approach will depend on how aggressive you're willing to get. Are you willing to ruin this relationship? If these are presumably people you have to continue to be around cordially because they're coworkers or family members or friends that you love and want to continue being around, I believe the best approach is a sort of gentle probing Socratic method of questioning, asking people to think about how they came to the conclusions they came to and hopefully some fraction of them will say, oh, the basis on which I've come to hold these beliefs isn't that strong. Let me let me sort of reexamine it. That's the the best I've suggested we can really hope for if you want to go with the gentle probing idea. 
Charlie Wartzel wrote a really great opinion piece in The New York Times called How to Talk to Friends and Family Who Share Conspiracy Theories, which contains a lot of really important information. And I thought we would go over some of the basics. And I, I recognize that when when I've talked about a Socratic method of questioning, one of the questions that comes up regularly is what exactly are the types of questions that I should be asking? So let's start there. First of all, almost exclusively the best place to start when someone shares a conspiracy theory on Facebook or in person at Thanksgiving or whatever the case may be is where is the information coming from? Where did you where did you learn that? How did you come to believe that thing that you just told me? This is useful because it opens the door to later asking. And how do you know that you can trust that source? How do you know the information is trustworthy? So it's useful for that reason. It's also useful because it helps you understand the sort of information environment. Where are some people getting this stuff? Some might be getting it from Facebook. Others may be hearing it at work. So that's very important. The next step, as I sort of alluded to, would be asking people how they've determined that the information is trustworthy. How have they determined that their source of information can be believed? What about it makes it believable? How would they know if it were not believable? These are generally relatively inoffensive questions that you can ask with a genuine curiosity to establish their system of belief and they can get people to start. They can get the, the, the gears moving. How do you identify something that would be less believable? And a lot of this is not necessarily for you to understand their level of media literacy, although that is useful. But again, inject the idea that they need a process for thinking about have I properly vetted and evaluated the conspiracy or the fake news that I'm sharing right now? And then maybe the hardest part is to really follow through on the assumption that if their conspiracy theory was real, then what other things would have to be real? And this one requires a little more knowledge and nuance. Imagine that you're right about this conspiracy theory. Imagine that what you're saying is true. What would happen next? What are you anticipating it would mean in terms of this or of that? And there's a really good example. I'll try to re this is on my Twitter. I'll try to reshare it if I can find it. I retweeted a really good Twitter thread that I went over last week on a stream where there was like a Hollywood screenwriter talking to a conspiracy theorist woman back and forth on Twitter. And he actually did this. He engaged with her ideas, which started with there's a plan for Trump to remain president. She was posting this on January 21st. Obviously, Trump was gone, but she was saying there is a plan for Trump to remain president after the inauguration. And this guy started asking specific questions. OK, how will it be carried out through what mechanism will Trump be back in office and Biden be gone? Well, he's going to be arrested. OK, what will he be arrested for? And eventually the woman came to the claim that Joe Biden had actually already died and been replaced with an imposter at some point in the past. And it was fascinating to see the questions that followed, which included, oh, how did Biden die? Was it of natural causes, disease or did somebody kill him? If he was killed, who killed him? How was it covered up? How many people would have needed to be involved in that to replace Biden with an imposter with nobody knowing? Why did they even need to kill him? Like, in other words, if Biden was going to steal the election either way, why do you need a fake Biden to steal the election from Donald Trump? Why not just have the real Biden steal the election from Donald Trump? Uh, and although this particular woman was clearly too far beyond reach, 
what was interesting was that it was a really good example of the types of questions that for some people can actually get them to say, uh, may maybe there's something about this that doesn't make sense. Really important. Last thought on this. Just because a belief isn't based on a solid foundation doesn't mean people will give it up easily. And remember that just because this idea, this system doesn't work on one person doesn't mean that it's the wrong method. We looked at that focus group with 12 Trumpists last week. Only one of the 12 was willing to reexamine his beliefs and see reason. So this a lot of people aren't even open to this. But for those that are, I find that this method seems to be the best one. Let me know your thoughts. If you've had success with this method, let me know. If you failed with this method, also let me know. I'm on Twitter at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. A lot of the shirts you see me wearing on YouTube are actually made by a company called Teddy Stratford. I love these shirts, and that's why I asked them to be a sponsor of the show. It really is the most innovative shirt you can buy because most slim fit button up shirts give you this weird stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are. You don't get that with the Teddy Stratford shirts because all of their shirts come with a patented zipper hidden beneath the buttons, which prevents the chest from stretching apart like that. But most importantly, just overall, it makes the shirt fit much better and look better. The carefully designed shirt is also cut in a way that improves the look of your upper body physique. It has a really nice, elegant, close fit that other shirts don't really give you. It also has a specially designed collar that won't fall down and lay flat, which I love. The difference all around with these shirts really is noticeable. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15% off your first order if you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout. That's P-A-K-M-A-N. If one of your goals for the new year is cutting back on carbs or sugar, check out our sponsor Monk Pack. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars are delicious sweet snacks with less than one gram of sugar, only two to three grams of net carbs and just about 150 calories. Perfect for a keto or low carb diet or just about anyone who wants to eat better by cutting back on sugar. I love the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars because they're really just a perfect balance of sweet and salty soft and chewy with a nice crunch from the nuts and seeds. Flavors include sea salt, dark chocolate, pecan almond and peanut butter, dark chocolate, my personal favorite. And they'll give you all of your money back if you don't love it. Go shop for Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars at MonkPack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com. And you'll get 20 percent off when using the coupon code Pacman. The link is in the podcast notes. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. The only place to get genuine David Pakman Show memberships is joinpakman.com. Accept no substitutes. If someone calls you and says they're offering memberships, we don't sell memberships by phone. If you get a letter saying send us a check for a membership, we don't solicit memberships by by a mail. 
the one place to get a membership is joinpacman.com and I hope that you will. Uh, over the last five or I guess now we're on day really oh wow today's actually the the uh, beginning of day seven of the Biden presidency. We have seen a dramatic change in what press briefings look like. Kaylee McEnany, who was Trump's press secretary, was replaced with Jen Psaki, who is Joe Biden's press secretary. And for the most part, she answers the questions that are asked. She's still a press secretary when it's not advantageous to answer. She won't. But we're actually getting valuable information about what's going on with Joe Biden. Now, one of the additional characters that has sort of come to prominence uh, during the Jen Psaki era is the son of Fox and Friends anchor Steve Ducey named Peter Ducey. Peter Ducey is Steve Ducey's son, and he, I guess, is now part of the White House press corps, and he has made it a habit to ask the most uh, aggressive question he can. And good for him, except that it's not good journalism. They're just sort of really dumb gotcha type questions. And hilariously, Jen Psaki actually called Peter Ducey Steve Ducey a couple of times. So this is like a whole little subculture thing that's developing in the White House press briefings. And I want to look at some clips with you. It really does seem as though Peter Ducey is trying to make himself known as the tough guy who's willing to hold Jen Psaki accountable, except it just implodes hilariously every time. Time. Here is one uh, clip from when Dr. Fauci joined Jen Psaki last week at her first or, or second press briefing. And uh, Peter Ducey uh, asked Dr. Fauci about rumors that Amazon was now offering to get involved with COVID 19. And right wingers say it's bias. Amazon refused to help Trump. Now they want to help Joe Biden in order to make him look good. Here is Dr. Fauci asked about that by Peter Ducey. Yeah. How helpful would it have been if Amazon got involved with the federal response to COVID-19 before Biden took office? And do you know about any plans or discussions ahead of yesterday? No, I I don't think I could answer that question. Uh, I'd I'd be waving my hands about that. Sorry. Well, you know, one of the new things in this administration is if you don't know the answer, don't guess. (laughs) Just say you don't know the answer. Yeah. Yes. Now, of course, this has nothing to do with Dr. Fauci. Peter Ducey is I get it. Peter Ducey is implying Amazon has political motivations for not helping Trump and offering to help Biden. That's if it's true that Amazon didn't offer to help Trump. I don't know. We don't know the answer to that. But the questions about Amazon's involvement during a prior administration either need to go from to someone from that administration who was working on supply and logistics, which Dr. Fauci was not, or to Amazon. The idea that that's a question for Dr. Fauci is hilarious. And Peter Ducey tried the same thing with Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. And on COVID, the question, uh, did the transition officials know before yesterday that Amazon wanted to get involved in such a meaningful way? We saw, uh, not that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm happy to check. I mean, when the reporting came out, I asked the question, and uh, I think uh, internally, and, you know, what was conveyed to me, and I don't think we discussed this yesterday, was that we've had a lot of outreach, um, some privately, some publicly, from a range of businesses and private sector entities, and we certainly welcome that, and uh, we'll be considering all of those offers and what makes the most sense in our uh, plans and proposals. So, because there are some Trump officials saying they were never offered help from Amazon, and so they're essentially saying they think this was a political call for Amazon to wait while lives were hanging in the balance, but you're saying that is not the case. 
I'm not aware of the timeline of when Amazon reached out. That sounds like a question for Amazon to me. And that's exactly right. Did they reach out to the Trump administration? I don't know. Ask the Trump administration or ask Amazon. It's not really a question for Joe Biden. Why are they interested now? Well, that's a question for Amazon. It's not a question for Dr. Fauci or for Jen Psaki. Then he goes to isn't it divisive that there will be impeachment? I'm sorry, I told you I was going to ask you. I just skipped over. That's you. Go ahead. Right. I'll take it now. Uh, so if President Biden wants a theme of his presidency to be unifying the country, does he think that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer should drop a potentially divisive Senate impeachment trial? The answer should be the same every single time. Joe Biden will play no role whatsoever in the impeachment trial. He is not going to try to get anyone in the Senate to do anything. He is not going to try to influence anyone in the Senate not to do anything. Joe Biden was not in the Senate when the House voted on impeachment. Joe Biden is not in the Senate now. It would be inappropriate for Joe Biden to exert any influence one way or the other. He will remain totally out of it. That is the exact right answer, and that's the answer that should be given every single time. Peter Ducey then also asked, why didn't Joe Biden wear a mask on, quote, federal lands during the inauguration at the Lincoln Memorial? Go ahead. Why weren't President Biden and all members of the Biden family masked at all times on federal lands last night if he signed an executive order that mandates masks on federal lands at all times? At the inaugural at the memorial, yes. And of course, they basically were wearing masks most of the time. Masks did come off at one point for some photographs. It was just Biden's family together. Probably a bad look. But the idea that this is a gotcha question when the Trump administration's mishandling of the virus led to probably more than 100,000 unnecessary deaths, it's just ridiculous. Here is Peter Ducey trying to call out Joe Biden for putting in place travel restrictions now after previously calling Donald Trump's travel restrictions xenophobic. And just one more about the announcement you made off the top about the travel restrictions. Mm -hmm. When President Trump was imposing travel restrictions in March, specifically on China, then candidate Biden called it xenophobic and fear mongering. So. Now, President Biden is putting travel restrictions on people coming in from other countries. What word do we use to describe that? Now, this is just not true. This has been repeated ad nauseum. Biden said it was xenophobic. He said the travel restrictions were xenophobic. The truth is that Biden supported covid travel restrictions and he called Trump xenophobic, but not for the covid travel restrictions. This is one of those where you if you repeat it enough times, it sort of becomes true. But Joe Biden didn't say the covid restrictions were xenophobic. He supported them. And he also said that Donald Trump was xenophobic for other reasons. Uh, yesterday, Joe Biden interestingly deliberately picking Peter Ducey, knowing that Ducey asks him sandbagging questions. Check this out. Uh, Ducey sort of asks a weird question about shutting down the virus and Joe Biden handles it perfectly well. Now, wait, 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 wait. I, I know he always asks me tough questions and he always has an edge to them, but I like him anyway. So go ahead and answer, answer, ask the question. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, so you just said that you 
think within three weeks or so, we'll be at the point where there are a million vaccines per day. But it seems like. No, I think we'll get there before that. I said, I hope I misspoke. I hope we'll be able to increase as we go on to get to the million five a day. That's my, my hope. And then my, the follow-up to that would be, uh, now that you're president and you're saying there is nothing we can do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months, what happened to two months ago when you were talking declaratively about, I'm going to shut down the virus? Well, I'm going to shut down the virus, but not, I never said I'd do it in two months. I said it took a long time to get here. It's going to take a long time to beat it. And so we have millions of people out there who, are, who have the virus. We're just for the first day, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I've been doing other things this morning, speaking with foreign leaders, but one of the things I think this is one of the first days that the numbers actually come down, the number of deaths and the number on a daily basis and the number of hospitalizations, et cetera. It's going to take time. It's going to take a heck of a lot of time. And we still have, as Dr. Fauci constantly points out, it's one thing when we have mass how can I say it politely, mass disregard of the warnings about not wearing masks and wearing masks and, and social distancing and failure to social distance and people getting together on holidays in ways that weren't recommended, et cetera. We see, first thing that happens is we see the, uh, the number of infections go up. Then you see the hospitalizations go up. Then you see the deaths go up. So remember that as reported yesterday, 69% of the country approves of Joe Biden's week one handling of the pandemic. Uh, but regardless, Joe Biden not phased, not thrown off by uh, Peter Ducey there. And I think this is how Ducey is going to try to become more well known during this presidency. I think that the uh, OAN reporter, I think it's OAN, Chanel Rion also tried to become known for asking certain types of questions during the Trump administration. The problem was she was uh, very, very bad. Oh, where is that noise coming? I apologize for that. She was very, very bad at asking the questions. And so she never really became uh, super well known. Uh, Ducey seems better, at least at formulating the questions, and he may very well end up uh, uh, be, be becoming relatively known for dropping tough questions on Jen Psaki and Joe Biden. But so far, the questions are all quite dumb. This is very interesting. We have the first approval rating for President Joe Biden. It's 63 percent. This is the highest approval rating at any time for any president dating back 12 years to 2009 to find an approval rating for a president higher than Joe Biden's current approval rating of 63 percent. You have to go all the way back to 2009, Barack Obama's first year in the White House when Obama hit 69 percent approval. Note that Donald Trump never got to even 50 percent approval even one time during his entire presidency. Now, there's a couple different things going on here. There is such a dramatic shift in covid policy, which is one of the top issues for most Americans right now, from Trump, who couldn't have failed more miser miserably to Biden, who's at least trying. And we'll see what degree of success he has. I think covid explains a lot of the shift to a high approval rating for Joe Biden. In addition, presidents often have their best approval ratings at the very beginning before they've done things that their political opponents can say are bad or done things that are actually bad. George W. Bush was different in that way. Uh, George W. Bush's approval rating skyrocketing 
I think to eight was it eighty eight percent after nine eleven, which was not um, which which was a bit of a ways in months in uh, to George W. Bush's presidency. But typically, this is when January, February, March of their first term. This is when presidents have their highest approval. So. It's not totally shocking that Biden's doing okay now. The fact that he's at 63% is quite interesting. We've not seen an approval that high for a president in 12 years. Now, being realistic, Biden probably settles below 63%. If he can really turn the pandemic around in the next four to six months, maybe he could get to 68. Maybe he could get to 70. Remember that right now, about 30% of this country is completely wackadoo. Okay. And uh, it's very hard for me to imagine that Biden's ceiling is much higher than 70 or 72% anyway. So maybe a successful Biden can peak at 67, 68, maybe 70. And a successful Biden would probably settle somewhere around the mid 50s if he does well. If he does as poorly as Trump, then you'd expect to see him in the high 30s, low 40s, uh, the way that Donald Trump does. The, the real test for Biden will be these next three to six months. What happens with the virus? What happens with vaccination? We, we are up now up to a one and a quarter million vaccinations a day, which is great. And what happens when unemployment expires for a lot of people? There are some major tests coming for Joe Biden, but these early numbers, very, very interesting to see. And at least to the degree that a hyperpolarized country can be united behind what a president is doing, 63% approval and 69% approval of COVID so far in this first week. It is significant to pretend it's not would would be dismissive of something that is significant. This is when you expect to see presidents with some of their higher approvals. Let's check in again about this in four to six weeks. Let's take a quick break. Make sure you're following the show on Instagram at David Pakman show. And while you're there, follow me on Instagram at David The David Pakman show at David One of our sponsors is a free mobile game called Word Forest, which I've been having a great time playing on my phone. There are not a lot of mobile games that I actually am into, but Word Forest is one I actually enjoy because I feel like it's helping me keep my mind sharp. We need that right now. It's a word game where you connect letters in any direction to form hidden word matches with over 2000 levels. You will never get bored of playing. It was really simple to learn how to play because it starts out easy, but I've been loving how it gets more difficult as I progress. But I find that the whole experience is just relaxing. It doesn't have to be super fast paced. It's awesome for anyone who loves word games and has a good vocabulary or wants to improve it. Go ahead and put yourself to the test. It's free. Just go to the Apple or Google store and search for word forest. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19, and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell, and that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, 
And I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. Welcome back to The David Pakman Show. It's great to welcome to the program today David Shore, who's a data scientist who consults with Democratic groups and has a number of insights into many different areas of uh, the political world, is, is the way I say it. Uh, glad, glad to have you here today. Uh, pleasure to be here. So let's just start with 2020 polling. I mean, there, the, the, how, how off or on was it? Certainly, Joe Biden was winning the popular vote polling and he won the popular vote and he became the president. There were certainly some states in which the numbers leading up to the election uh, did, did not quite work out. I mean, what, what's your sort of overall assessment of what's happening with polling right now? Yeah, well, first, I, as, as a, I guess, disclaimer, I think in some ways it's funny that going into election night, we thought that Joe Biden would win and that Democrats would get 50 or 51 Senate seats. And, you know, the end result, Joe Biden is president. Democrats do have 50 Senate seats. Uh, so I think that is kind of funny. But, you know, that said, the polling was actually fairly bad this year. You know, just to put numbers on it, uh, I think there's kind of two distinct problems, you know, with polling. You know, one is just that uh, we really the numbers were way too high for Democrats. Uh, on average, there was about a three percent uh, bias toward Democrats, and that's in vote share, which means that in terms of margin, you're looking at you know roughly six percent. This happened on basically every level of government, on the Senate, on the House, you know, on the presidency. And you know, if you were looking at polls, you would ex you were coming in expecting that Biden was going to win states like Florida, that uh, we would have you know maybe like a bunch of Democratic seats, and that we were supposed to pick up ten seats in the House, and you know none of those things happened. And then I think on top of that, you know, it's not just that the polling on average, you know, was uh, was too Democratic, but the kind of pa uh, error pattern by state, you know, really matched what we saw in 2016 and you know what we saw in 2018, where these kind of, these states in the Midwest with a lot of you know non-college educated whites uh, really. Uh, we saw a strong overestimation of support. I think there was a, you know, a Kinnipiac poll or uh, in Wisconsin right before the election where it said that Biden would win by 15 and he ended up, you know, winning by less than one. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty bad cycle for polling. And then just the last angle you know, just to recount, you know, all the ways the polls were bad this year is just in terms of looking at coalitions, you know, the big changes in this election 
roughly speaking, were that non-college whites were, you know, basically where they were in 2016. College-educated whites swung something like six or seven percent toward us. You know, African Americans swung two points uh, down, and I think Hispanic voters, you know, now that all the data's in, looks like they dropped by like nine percent. And the polls didn't really see any of those trends coming. There was like a little bit of warning signs, you know, with non-white voters, though it ended up being worse than the polls thought. But if you looked at the polls, the polls really told this story that we were going to see education depolarization, that non-college whites were going to trend toward Democrats and college-educated whites were going to, you know, stay basically where they were last time. And that just didn't happen. You know, if you look at uh, if you just look at the college non-college gap, it looks like the polls were off by something like 10 or 11 percent, which is crazy. Um, in a lot of ways, the polls were a lot worse than 2016. So let's dig into one aspect of this, which is that the concept of polling is you're, you can't poll everybody. So the idea is you get a representative sample. And what does it mean that it's representative? Often we're talking about, well, we'll normalize it for education or we can normalize it for race. We can normalize it for political affiliation. You can normalize it for age, all of these different things. But one of the things you really can't normalize for, correct me if I'm wrong, is the types of people that are more likely to participate in a poll versus the types of people that are more likely to opt out. And we heard this from some on the right who who kind of said it as uh, a lot of Trumpists don't trust the polls, so they either give deliberately fake answers or don't participate. And there's no great way to deal with that as a pollster. How much truth is there to the general idea of people willing to and not willing to participate? And then maybe more specifically to some of the explanations that were given by tr supporters of the president of former President Trump. Yeah, I, I think in some ways, I, I think there's something to the story. I do want to be clear that if you ask someone who they're going to vote for in a survey, they do generally tell you the truth. You know, okay. it's, it's not an issue with trolling. But, you know, that said, I think one of the big drivers for why the polling was so wrong this year and why it was actually worse than 2016 uh, was that there were really giant, you know, differences in who was answering uh, the phone. You know, something that, you know, the way that, uh, you know, the firm I worked for, the way that they do polling, they actually match people back to uh, voter files. And so we can see their party registration. And something that was really clear is that starting around March, Democrats became much more likely, you know, to answer the phone than Republicans. And I think it's it's kind of, and they kind of stayed at these elevated levels throughout the entire election. And I think there's a pretty clear story that this had a lot to do with lockdown, that Democrats were literally home. There's like a lot of cell phone mobility data that really shows that Democrats stayed home and they didn't really have much to do. And they started answering surveys at high rates and Republicans weren't doing that. And, you know, they just weren't uh, picking up the phones. But, you know, generalizing, you know, that was an issue with this year. And I, I think it was uh, clear. Um, but even in 2016, you know, when we look back uh, at why the polls were wrong, and I think this bias continued now, like, why is it that pollsters have such a hard time measuring opinion in states that have a lot of working class white people. And originally, people really talked about this in terms of Trump turning out a lot of new voters. And I, I think that there's a lot of evidence now that that's not really true, that you know all of these election switches were really driven by people changing their minds as opposed to changes in who voted. But then the question is, why, did, why were the polls wrong? And why were the polls wrong in more in working class areas? And it kind of comes back to this concept of social trust um, that uh, political scientists and uh, sociologists like to talk about. Uh, and so that's just operationalized with this question of, do you think that people can be trusted or do you think that people should keep to themselves? And something that's pretty wild just socially is that, you know, the government's been asking this 
on a very high quality survey. They spend a couple thousand dollars per person and they get like a 70% response rate. Phone response rates are closer to 1%, you know, just for reference point. And they've been asking it since the, six, the 670s. And it used to be that, you know, roughly 55% of people said that people could be trusted. And that figure is down to 30%. Hmm. Uh, so that's sociologically, that's sociologically very concerning, um, though above my pay grade. Um, but it has measurement implications uh, because people who trust, um, people who say that people can be trusted, kind of unsurprisingly, are a lot more likely to answer phone surveys. And that used to not matter very much because how much you trusted the people around you and how much you trust institutions just used to not be that correlated with partisanship. Uh, but in 2016, you know, Donald Trump really reshaped the coalition. Uh, you know, if 2012 was a co it was a basically, uh, you know, a fight over whether or not we should have universal health care, 2016 was much more of a referendum on like, how much do you trust the people around you? And we were only talking in these surveys to these high trust people who say that people can be trusted. And if you, and you know, th there was literally this hidden, you know, hidden majority of low trust folks who went in the other direction. And so, you know, we've actually looked in crosstabs. And if you look among people who said that people could be trusted, that group swung toward Democrats by, you know, something like four or 5%. But the other group went completely in the opposite direction. And, you know, this high trust sample, that was the people we were polling. And that's the world we expected to see on election day. Um, but then they didn't actually answer. And, you know, the same thing, you know, I actually, you know, people don't realize happened in 2018. Democrats won, so they didn't notice. But if you look at the actual margins in places like West Virginia, places like Michigan, places like Ohio, the elections were much closer than people, re than, you know, the polls originally thought, even if, uh, even if we ended up winning. And then we see the same thing again, you know, in, uh, in 2020. Uh, and, I, I, and I think that uh, social trust is a very important, you know, angle for understanding it. One of the things I saw you to shift gears a little bit, I, I read some of your tweets about, which I find very interesting, is about the bias of the Electoral College. And you posted a couple things that I find really interesting. One is that you you posted the partisan bias of the Electoral College over time. And one of the things you found is that Democrats now need about 52 percent of the vote in order to have a 50 50 shot of winning the presidency, given that it's not the national popular vote that decides, but but rather the electoral vote. And then the other That's really right. interesting thing is that there's this notion that part of what makes the Electoral College depart in terms of its orientation from the popular vote is that small states are really overweighted relative to their populations. And you pointed out something very interesting, which is that in terms of the difference makers, when it comes down to who ultimately wins the Electoral College, it's more about the fact that there are some larger population states which are relatively close, could be 52, 48, could be 55, 45, 60, 40. But because they are winner take all, you are essentially I don't know if the right word is disenfranchising, but if you're part of the 42 percent of Democrats in a big red state, your vote essentially doesn't matter for calculating the Electoral College. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's just important to you know say that the bias in the Electoral College, I think, is, is very new. You know, it is true that you know Gore won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College, but the bias of the Electoral College was really quite small that year. You know, uh, Gore got something like 52.2 percent, and and you know uh, he he very he very very narrowly lost. Um, and so that 
you know, that was like random and not really that big a deal. And really, the Electoral College at various points has favored Democrats. You know, it's if uh, if Barack Obama in 2012 had gotten about 49.5 percent of the vote, he actually still, you know, probably would have won. That's that's why people talk about the blue wall. There there are basically these big. This is just a little bit of a history lesson, but you know, there there are just these big Midwestern states that kind of had their economies centered around farming and manufacturing, and as a result. You know they have rel they're both you know relatively white and also have relatively low education levels relative to the rest of the country, and the electoral college really comes down to who does well in these places. And in 2012, you know Obama, a lot of his appeal was he actually did very well. You know with Midwestern whites, he did better in the Midwest than Kerry and really than a lot of Democrats before him. Uh, and but he also did well enough among college-educated whites to make places like Virginia and Colorado competitive. So the electoral college had like a small bias in his favor. 2016 totally changed that, though. And you know, it's really great if you can see the graph, because you know, it just kind of wiggles around zero, and then there's just this sudden plunge um, to there being, I think, a three-point uh, you know, three gap uh, bias in, in the Republican favor. And I think that that's you know, the really underappreciated part of understanding 2016, which is that Barack Obama got about 52% of the two-party vote uh, in 2012, and Hillary Clinton got 51.1% of the vote. And in any other democracy, that would have been fine. You know, a 0.9% decline, still, you know, comfortably above 50. Um, but the problem was that the Electoral College shifted from being about half a point bias in favor of Democrats to being three points bias in favor of Republicans. And then that bias increased again. Uh, and so it's helpful to put numbers on these things. And you know, just to get to your other question, I think people really don't understand why the Electoral College causes this bias. You know, as you said, it's not that you have these tiny states. It's not about Wyoming. Uh, in order to get to 270 states, you have to win states like Wisconsin, like Minnesota, like Ohio. And there just happen to be a bunch of relatively evenly divided states that right now are somewhat more Republican than the country overall. And I think the you know the key point is that the reason why this happened is because Democrats have started doing so much worse uh, among working class white people. And, you know, unless that gets reversed, I think it's unlikely that this is going to that this is going to revert. You know, I think a lot of people expected that, you know, things would get better this year. And the key point is that the bias went from three points in 2016 to four points in 2020. Uh, and so it really just shows how unworkable, you know, our coalition is under this set of rules. Uh, absolutely in fundamental insights to understand, really, in thinking about future elections. I mean, if you if, if one does not understand reality as it is, it's hard to run a campaign that that is based on that reality. Uh, we've been speaking with David Shore, who's a data scientist who consults with Democratic groups. You uh, certainly should follow him on Twitter, as I do. Uh, David, I, I so appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, pleasure to be here. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors is Hydrant, which is a delicious fruit drink powder that you mix into water for rehydration, and they're giving you 25% off your first order. It's made with four key electrolytes that the body needs, powerfully supporting your hydration. Hydrant tastes great. It's made with real fruit juice. It's been a great part of my daily routine for a while now. Keeping myself hydrated puts me in a better mood. 
The body needs hydration for basic energy and focus and hydrant is the perfect way to rehydrate, especially because it's cost effective and lower in sugar compared to all of those popular sports drinks that are out there. You really have to try it for yourself to see what I mean. It tastes great. They also have a variety called hydrant immunity packed with vitamins A, B, C and D, which is also very much worth trying. Hydrant has a full refund guarantee if you're not satisfied and you'll get 25% off your first order when you go to drinkhydrant.com slash Pacman or enter the code Pacman at checkout. That's drink H Y D R A N T dot com slash P A K M A N coupon code Pacman. I've put the link in the podcast notes. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. All right, let's take a whirlwind tour through religious media over the last six days with you. It's very interesting what's happening in religious right media right now. Uh, absent evidence that is convincing in a court, which was all thrown out over the last two months. Religious media has been taking a prophecy approach to Donald Trump being the real winner of the November 2020 presidential election. They've been taking the approach that God or the Bible or prophecy or uh, sacred texts can explain what is happening with Joe Biden. And it can be the source of hope that Donald Trump is going to somehow reappear in the Oval Office sometime very soon. And this is really amazing. Now, as you know, I believe this is delusion. I believe that this is a form of mental illness if it's not merely a grift to make money. Okay, it may just be a scam, but I believe if the things you're going to hear now are real beliefs, I believe that it's that it's mental illness. And um, I want to be sort of really clear when people say, uh, you know, it's it's rude to call this mental illness. I'm going to explain more about this. I don't think there's anything rude whatsoever about what I'm saying. Let's take a look at the first clip. This is right wing pastor Hank Kuneman, who prophesied or prophesized prophesied. I don't know. He predicted that a Trump's reelection would happen. He's now fighting back against people who are saying you were wrong. Hank, you said that Trump was going to be reelected. Maybe you are a false prophet. And Kuneman says, well, God hates it when you say that. He didn't say he hates discord. He hates he. He. He hates you that are being a troll. He hates you that are attacking your Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah, but they're false. They're wrong. Excuse me. How do you know? Because it hasn't come to pass. How do you know that it hasn't come to pass? First of all, the president was reelected. Let's get that clear. Second of all, he was given a second term based on reelection. Well, he's not serving it now because it was stolen by thieves. Doesn't that make sense to everyone? Just perfectly clear. Now, again, if he believes that, I believe that that is deep mental illness. And I know some of you are going to write to me and you'll say, David, that's alienating to the religious folks in your audience. It's offensive to all religious people. And I'm here to tell you the answer is no. If you are nominally Catholic, for example, and you go to church 
and you believe there's some greater power at play. But you're not so deluded that you think God is controlling elections or that Joe Biden has the mark of the beast or God is speaking through people like Hank Kuneman. You and I might disagree. I'd say, you know, I don't see evidence for your understanding of the world, but I wouldn't say that you're deluded or mentally ill. Nominally Jewish beliefs about a greater force could be a God, could be something else, some kind of energy. That's not this. This is something else. Let's not conflate when I say this is deep delusion, this with the nominally religious beliefs that tens of millions of Americans hold. There is a difference here. Even if I don't subscribe to either of them, there is a difference here. Here is right wing pastor Greg Locke declaring that Joe Biden is an imposter, a false prophet, an illegitimate president whose presidency is not only false, it's also demonic. My favorite moment is when people start to hold their hands up in the air as Greg Locke talks. There ain't one place in the whole Bible that God ever even remotely encourages me to accept something that we know is demonic and false. Joe Biden is not the president of the United States of America as far as Greg Locke is concerned. He's a liar. He's an imposter. He's a false prophet. He's an illegitimate president that did not win. And I don't care if you send him my name, my phone number, and my mug shot that comes across his desk. I ain't scared of his executive orders. I bow before Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what the FBI says. I don't care what Fox and CNN or Newsmax says. I'm telling you, God is about to turn this whole thing around. If you believe that, give him a shout of praise. This morning, give him a shout of praise and maybe drop a $20 bill in the hat, please. Right. That is either a straight up grift or a mentally ill person, period. After the inauguration, religious right activist Elizabeth Enloe insists Trump will return to office and she declares that she will not recognize someone who was illegally elected as president. Notice in this if you're watching. I guess it's her husband sitting next to her. He just smiles as she says this stuff, as if she's making a lot of sense and as if he's really proud. I do believe that President Trump will um, be back in that position of authority, even though there was an inauguration yesterday. I um, do not and will not recognize someone who has illegally yeah. been elected as my president. I just can't do that. And, you know, I'll cut to the chase. People will ask. Some have already asked us, well, at what point would you um, kind of transition into letting go of contending for, you know, President Trump being our next president for four years, not in 2024, but like coming now. And I, for me, I don't know the answer to that question. I just know when when I'll know it and it's not now I'm not even close to being ready to relinquish um, my faith and what God has assured my heart of and what I'm hearing reflected in the prophetic voices that that I've been listening to. It's funny. Are these people religious experts or election experts? It's hard to tell from the things that they're saying. And notice that the truth is in there. She says, I'm not ready to admit Trump lost. 
everything else, couching it as for as faith, as prophecy, the truth about Trump's return. It's window dressing to what she actually admits, which is I'm just not ready to accept that Donald Trump simply lost, which is what happened. Here's one last one. This is from. Uh, OK, so before the election, a guy named Steve Schultz of ElijahList.com said, if Trump doesn't uh, serve a second term, I will apologize. That was his promise before the election, before the inauguration. Trump is out. Um, Biden is in, but Steve Schultz still won't apologize. He says God still has time to kick out Joe Biden and bring Donald Trump back. As for my chair, all legal remedies have come and gone. They're done. They're over. So then you say, well, then how can you possibly believe that God could do this? God never works with possibilities. He works with impossibilities. I should say he never does. When he wants to show, show up and show off, he, he makes sure every single possibility is exhausted so that man can never say, see, I knew if we held on long enough, the Supreme Court would do this or something like that. So, so we're giving you these prophetic proclamations and decrees and just the prophetic word of the Lord, not based on what we see could happen, but based on who we serve that tells us what he's going to do. So there it is, uh, depending on who they serve, if they serve God or not, who knows, then God might somehow still be able to make his prophecy correct. I just don't understand how it's going to happen at this point, but he's refusing to apologize and definitely keep sending money. That's the the one thing that binds all of these folks together is the gravy train must not stop. You've got to keep sending the money in. Incredible. And people get scammed by this. People send money to these grifters or delusional people or some combination of the two really horrible stuff. Twitter has permanently banned my pillow CEO Mike Lindell's account after he continued to repeat bogus claims about Donald Trump winning the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Mike Lindell has been really a fixture of disinformation. He first appeared more prominently early in the coronavirus pandemic. He was up alongside Trump at one of the White House press briefings uh, talking about how Trump is a gift from God and Trump talking about how Mike Lindell, instead of making some of his pillows, is going to make some PPE. I never heard again about whether Mike Lindell actually delivered the PPE, but that's at least what they claimed back in. What was it? Maybe May or something like that. In any case, he became Mike Lindell became a major player in claiming that Trump was about to win, that Trump actually won, that they're going to get Biden out and Trump in for a second term. And now Twitter has decided to ban Mike Lindell over, quote, repeated violations of its civic integrity policy, according to a Twitter spokesperson. Now, because Mike Lindell has been posting so much of this stuff, it's not actually obvious right now which of his exact posts triggered this suspension in even better news. Lindell is up against a possible lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems. We told you yesterday Dominion Voting Systems is suing Rudy Giuliani for one point three billion dollars for his defamate. They claim defamatory claims about them. Uh, now, Mike Lindell also may be getting sued for his claims that Dominion Voting Systems were part of some 
big election fraud that he claims exists, but for which there is no evidence. He also urged Trump, you might remember, to declare martial law in Minnesota to obtain its ballots and somehow overturn the election. Here was Mike Lindell. Quick reminder at a pro Trump rally. This was January 5th, not January 6th, the day of the insurrection. It was January 5th talking about how Trump will be president from November 4th on. Every day I have spent looking into the election fraud. I've worked with Sidney Powell, General Flynn, all the guys with these machines, these experts. And I can tell you 100% Donald Trump is going to be your president for four more years. I have, I have never, ever, ever said anything less than, than 100%. And just today, there was so much this morning. I was on the phone with General Flynn. And just even more evidence came out. These are going to be bonus evidence just to put more people in prison. Now, of course, no one is in prison. Uh, Joe Biden has been sworn in. And now Mike Lindell is under threat of lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems and suspended from Twitter. So, you know, I, I got into a little bit of an argument with people on Twitter. I believe that the My Pillow guy is dangerous, but he's dangerous not because of who or what he is. He's made dangerous by an American society and culture in which lots of people fall for the stuff he says. So what I mean by that is this in a more normal world, no one would pay more attention to Mike Lindell than they pay attention to the rantings of that guy on the subway platform who's screaming stuff about repenting or whatever the case may be in a more normal world. This guy wouldn't be alongside a president on TV and having the platform that he has because of American society and culture and lack of education and media literacy. Mike Lindell ends up getting propped up by Trump himself, by QAnon types and even by some of right wing media. So the 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 danger of Mike Lindell not doesn't come just from, oh, it's someone in a country of three hundred and thirty one million saying crazy things. We have plenty of those people. The problem comes from the way in which our society is susceptible to falling for con men like Mike Lindell, like Trump on another level. And that's where the danger comes from. So when people say this is just one dude, how can you say he's dangerous? Well, he's dangerous as a result of combining him. It's sort of like you can have components to a poison that by themselves aren't poisonous. When they come together, it becomes a poisonous brew. That's what we're talking about with Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell plus a susceptible population, uh, plus those who are susceptible that have the ability to give this guy a significant platform. That's where the danger comes from. Hey, here's an interesting voicemail. You can call me at 2192 David P. Here's a guy saying, How can I be calling for unity now? When I was against the things Donald Trump did when he was elected, this guy misunderstands my position. But let's take a listen. Yeah, hi. I got a question. I'm listening to your show today. It's uh, Monday the 25th, and you're talking something about unity, and it's like I don't understand. Um, we were saying unity four years ago when Trump was president. I mean, uh, I don't understand. Are you saying you want unity now? But back then. You, everything he did, you were against. No, 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 no. I am not the ones de demanding unity. I'm the one saying anyone thinking there will be unity doesn't understand what's going on. And so this is a very, very important thing. 
I had I was not hypocritically demanding unity in 2016 and uh, uh, or or ignoring it then and then now calling for it back in 2016. I was clear. Listen, Trump won and I'm going to oppose the things he does if I think they should be opposed. Joe Biden now won and we know that we aren't going to see any unity from the right. Joe Biden is asking for unity. Some Republicans are asking for unity, even though for them the definition of unity is Biden not doing anything different than Donald Trump. I'm not the one calling for unity. I'm the one pointing out it's not going to happen. So that that's certainly a misunderstanding. We've got a great bonus show today. We will talk about control of the Senate. We will talk about Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. That is back in the news. We will talk about Trump's second impeachment trial. Get instant access to the bonus show by becoming a member at joinpackman.com.